I'm going to base this episode on the work of one of my very favorite sports psychology authors, Jim Lair. And Lair is spelled L-O-E-H-R. And the words in his book, The New Toughness Training for Sports. That's The New Toughness Training for Sports by Jim Lair. I try to read as much as I can in this subject area, and this publication is right at the top for me and has been for quite some time. If you have had one of my presentations inflicted upon you, you have probably seen me hold up my dog-eared copy. Jim Lair is one of the very few authors to have placed the largely theoretical world of sports psychology into reality, providing actual activities one can do to improve in this area. It's a must-read for any teams with whom I work. Okay, let's examine why teams lose. And to illustrate, I'm going to use the analogy of a curling house, the rings. The 12-foot, the 8-foot, the 4-foot, and the button. In the 12-foot circle, not at all close to competing successfully, is tanking. I don't think this is a very well-known term, actually, perhaps used more south of the border than here in Canada, but so many talented teams fall into this category. I describe tanking as being afraid to win. What? How can a team be afraid to win? Isn't that the whole reason for competing? Good questions, and let's take them one at a time. Being afraid to win is all about taking a risk. Entering any competition is facing defeat squarely in the face. That's why short-term goal setting is so important. A loss on the scoreboard doesn't necessarily mean that all was lost. The short-term goal might have been to eliminate a big end plague that has been haunting your team. Well, you did that, but a series of small ends scored by your opposition did you in. Well, did you lose? Uh, Yes. Were you successful in meeting your short-term goals? Yes. But let's get real. Sometimes that scoreboard is all that counts, and it's uncomfortable to lose. And as confident as one might be when taking to the ice, there is the possibility that you might lose. So teams not wishing to risk losing start to rationalize their way to a perceived victory. They set a new standard of success that is not like short-term goal setting. You see, it's tanking. It's being the surprise winner of your club championship and then realizing that in the next level of competition, all the club members will be looking at you in regionals. And yikes, all the clubs in the zone will be watching. So without discussing it, the team decides that a good showing at the zones will allow them to say, well, we won the club title and got to the C semis at zones. Hey, we did pretty well. In reality, you had just as much talent as any other team in the zones and could have gone on to regions, but you tanked. You didn't want to take the risk of being on stage at regions. And the important point here is that it wasn't talked about among the team members. I use this in just about every high-performance camp. It goes like this. Everyone wants to win. Some even know what it takes to win. But few are willing to do what it takes to win. 
Willing to do what it takes doesn't just mean the sacrifices of practice, etc. It means being willing to take a risk as well. We have all tanked at some point or another. For me, it was in the last millennium, in the early 1970s. I was playing out of a small four-sheet club in the town of Elmira, just north of my hometown of Kitchener-Waterloo. We won the zones that year and had to play a team from down the road in London, Ontario, who had already been to the Briar. At that time, there were no regions, and the 16 zone winners across Ontario were paired in a best-of-three competition with the winner moving on to provincials. The games were played at the Glenbriar Curling Club, which no longer exists in the city of Waterloo. The London team knew what they were doing. In the locker room, they were already talking about provincials, not this silly zone competition. And yep, they were wearing their purple hearts. We, on the other hand, sat silent, watched, and listened. We played our game to a T in game one. We had everything in sight and only drew if we had the chance. Obviously, this was long before free guard zone rules. The London squad, on the other hand, was not quite as sharp, and we won. Then it happened. We knew that we were one win away from going to provincials. We knew it meant a trip into the big smoke, Toronto, to play the other seven interzone winners, which usually meant playing more big city teams. So what did we do? We played well and almost won. We took on those London sharpshooters and took them to the brink. Wow, what a great try. We didn't realize it then, but what we actually did was tanked. We were afraid to win. We were just as good as they were. Actually, looking back on that particular day, we were probably better. But we didn't want the risk of looking silly at provincials, so we folded our tent carefully and quietly. We felt pretty good at the time, but we tanked. I'm not proud of that, but I learned never to do that again. The long-term feeling is not very comfortable. In the eight-foot circle of our imaginary house is anger. The poster boy for anger was the tennis player, John McEnroe. To this day, many knowledgeable tennis people feel that he might have been the greatest naturally talented player to ever live. But very few would regard him so due to his on-the-court outbursts. In his playing days, John McEnroe's fan club could have held its annual convention in a telephone booth. He was not well-liked, but he didn't care. He was focused on only one thing, winning. Unfortunately, he fell short of many of his goals due to his anger. It was his way of dealing with stress. For those of you who did not have the quote-unquote privilege of seeing him play, John directed his tantrums at officials, line judges were his favorite target, media, event organizers, grounds crew, opponents, fans, locker room attendants, ball boys or girls, etc. Many thought it was just his miserable temperament. 
But if you watch John do his color work on television today, you will know that he's really a pretty good guy. No, anger was his way of dealing with stress. Worthy of note is the fact that almost never was his anger self-directed. But you see, of course, that was by design. But it took energy to carry on like that, energy that should have been directed to the task at hand, playing top-flight tennis. In a word, he was not accountable for his shortcomings and therefore never reached his true potential. In the curling world, the lack of accountability is clearly evident in the excuses that a player makes. The ice is bad. The skip can't place the brush properly. The game time is too late. The food at the club is poor. The lighting is bad. The brushers don't judge the draws well. The, well, I think you get the picture. Usually the complainers are good curlers, but their anger, always addressed towards someone or something else, prevents success. In the 12-foot circle, we had tanking, and in the 8-foot circle, anger. Now we're in the 4-foot, and we find the most maligned of all sports terminology, choking. For an athlete to say that he or she choked, It's like a chef admitting his or her souffle fell. It's death itself. But when you choke, it means some good things. It means that you didn't tank. You are willing to take the risk. It also means that you focused your energy on playing the game and were accountable for your actions so you weren't angry. Unfortunately, it also means that you probably focused on the outcome of the event rather than the task at hand. Hey, we've all done it. If I make this open hit, we win the bonds bill. If I make this open draw, we're in the final. If I, well, you get that picture too. And you know the likely result. Whoops, you choked. But the good news is that you were very close to that competitive button. So, okay, I've kept you in suspense long enough. What's on the button? To be truly competitive and to perform well, you must feel challenged. It's that I-can't-wait-to-play attitude that all elite athletes have. Where have you heard that before recently in the podcast? It's not cockiness. It's not defiance. It's not overbearing, but it is calmness. It is trust in your skill set and that of your teammates. It is tunnel vision. It is the zone. You can be challenged without being successful on the scoreboard, but it is not trying to do your best. That's an outcome that results frequently in choking. It's the knowledge that if you don't succeed in the scoreboard, your opponent had to bring his or her A game and drain their tank. It took everything they had. When you lose, make sure it was for the right reasons. And of course... Don't lose the lesson. In the first part of this episode, Why Teams Lose, came from an article on my blog site. And again, my blog site is truenorthbuild.blogspot.com. And I recall a coach having read that article about Why Teams Lose 
he contacted me and said, wow, that's a pretty negative outlook on things. But, you know, when we lose, we, we do need to talk about why we lost. And so you know, making sure that you don't tank, that you're not afraid to win, you know, don't be angry, be accountable, and don't choke. Keep your eye on performance, not the outcome. So I wrote another article called, Now What Do We Do? Because it's a team that's ready to go. They're going to make sure they don't fall into any of those three pitfalls. And so this is parts of that article. And it started with, you know, don't be afraid to win. And so I'm sure that phrase sounded somewhat comical to some, but it's my experience that success at a particular level might have come quite unexpectedly and perhaps in dramatic fashion. By qualifying for the next level, more of a spotlight is placed upon you. Your attitude going into that next round is critical. If you feel as though you've got no chance to succeed, very likely that's exactly what will happen. Like, duh. Don't assume that your team will be anointed with success just because of who you are, but also don't assume you're going to be trampled to death because you didn't think for a moment that you'd be there. And again, I've, I've talked about what Henry Ford said on a number of occasions. I'll repeat it here. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You don't want to leave the competition realizing you lowballed your hopes and aspirations. Attitude will mean everything. And if you read my posts on my blog site, you know what I prefer. Coach, we just can't wait to play. So that's a bit of a repeat from what we heard in the first part of this episode. But here's the next thing. Do less, but do it better. There's always the tendency to feel that now you have to do more to help the team. When exactly the opposite is true. Do less. Just do it better. When you try to be someone you're not, you're never going to be the person that you are. It was good enough to get you there. It will be good enough to keep you there. You can't leave your skills at home. Trust those skills and those of your teammates. Support one another unconditionally. Do all the non-skill-based things you know help you perform. Do everything you can to ensure that your teammates have a great competition, a great game. If you do that, your team will get greater than the sum of its part. Look after your real self. That competition for which you qualified is quite likely only a few weeks down the road. You aren't going to hone new skills in that time period, so don't even try. Don't practice harder or longer. In other words, don't focus on your performer self. He or she is okay, but do focus on your real self. Make sure that when you leave for that next competition, all is right with family, friends, coworkers, school, etc. Compete with the knowledge that all is right back home. That way, you can concentrate on the task at hand. Next up, be the best teammate you can be. This is the most valuable skill in your toolbox. You know how to contribute to not only overall success of the team, but the success of each of your teammates. If four athletes do that, they will perform well, and that's the goal. If you're not sure how to support one another, ask. Next, 
do what you've always done. There's a saying, those of you who deliver high-performance camp use with attending teams, if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you always got. I said that a few episodes ago. A companion adage is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. We know that. It is our participant observation that teams aspiring to increase levels of performance don't do things wrong. There are some necessary components that they don't do at all and find out what they are. Elite teams don't practice until they get it right. Elite teams and athletes practice until they can't get it wrong. And next, know why you are succeeding. You and your team have obviously done something and some things that are working. Identify those things and make sure they're in your repertoire when you go to that next event. Next, learn to deal with distractions. Distractions are the biggest skill killer, especially if you're unaccustomed to playing in an event such as the one in which you are about to play. It's really difficult to prepare for distractions, but I have an activity to help you with that. In a nutshell, expect the unexpected. If nothing unexpected occurs, no harm, no foul. But if it does, you won't be surprised. Talk to those who have been where you're going. Next, take someone with you. If someone you know, you singular or plural, is willing, take him or her up on the offer, but be sure he or she knows exactly how she or he can assist. Without marching orders, his or her involvement just might be one of those dreaded distractions about which I just spoke. If the person willing to come to the event will be in a coaching role, that's when you really must be sure that he or she knows how they can help. And then, of course, this isn't going to be any surprise to you because this is what choking is all about. Focus on the process, not the prize. I know you've heard about this recently But process is way more important than outcome. Outcomes take care of themselves. But you are in control of the process. Enough said. Practice. Oh, what a novel idea. If your practice sessions concentrate on weight control drills and activities, make sure you know what you're doing. You perhaps have heard me say, the athlete who knows why will always defeat the athlete who only knows how. Let me repeat that. The athlete who knows why will always, in the long term, defeat the athlete who only knows how. Have a reason for everything you do. For the first time, he might have the opportunity for a pre-event practice and pre-game practices. Decide exactly how you're going to use that time period. You will have on each sheet, likely the day before the event, so that would be a pre-competition practice, In your practice sessions, literally choreograph your pregame warm-up starting with what you, singular and plural, want from the pregame warm-up to provide for you. Next, activity. This activity was referred to before in, in regard to distractions. Have everyone on the team take a blank sheet of paper and draw a large circle. So this was the activity to which I referred. Inside the circle, place all the aspects of the event over which you and your teammates have either complete control or at least a good deal of influence. 
Outside the circle, identify those aspects of the competition over which you and your teammates have absolutely no control or at least very little. Make a pact with your teammates that all topics listed outside the circle will not be discussed. Never. Nutrition and physical preparation. It's much too late to decide to eat to perform if you've not been doing it all along. Same goes for physical preparation. Eat and prepare physically as you would normally. It may be the best learning experience for the future. Wink, wink. And last up, read the rules and the event regulations. More than one team has gotten itself into a mess because they did not read the rules and regulations governing the event. If there's a participant's guide, read it, word for word. It's not a bad idea to reacquaint yourself with the actual rules of curling. Regulations can change if the event is officiated or not officiated. If you're the skip, make sure you are aware that if a rule infraction is caused by the opposition, you need to know what happens. Don't be getting a drink of water when that happens. And then you have to know what options are at your disposal. So there's some some things that will help you when you are ready to compete at the next level. And with my senior teams that I take to the Senior World Championships, one of the first things that we all do, me included, is I get them to read the rule book. And, you know, for a lot of us who have played for a long time, we just sort of say, well, I know all the rules. Well, maybe you don't. Thank you for joining me behind uh, Pain in the Class podcast for this episode on why teams lose and some advice about how you can turn that frown upside down and, and start to win. I want to leave you with a thought about experience. We talked about experience a few episodes ago, and here's a definition that I really like about experience. It's not mine, and again, I don't recall where I picked this up. Well, listen very carefully. Experience doesn't reduce the number of shots that are missed. But experience can reduce, and in some cases totally eliminate, the negative effects from those missed shots. And I'm going to repeat that. Experience doesn't reduce the number of shots that are missed necessarily, but experience can reduce, and in some cases totally eliminate, the negative effects that those missed shots create. And here's a related thought, and I say this frequently, it's not about the shots you make, it's how you deal with the shots you miss. And once again, it's not about the shots you make, it's how you deal with the shots you miss, and that's where experience counts. Thank you very much for joining me in this episode of A Pain in the Glass podcast. This is Bill Shearhart, National Coach with Curling Canada, coming to you from my home in Grand Bend, Ontario, on the ancestral land of the Kettle and Stony Point First Nations. A Pain in the Glass podcast is sponsored by Canada Curling Stone of Kamoka, Ontario. So, until next time, and I look forward to meeting with you through the magic of audacity that's the software that i use for my podcast 
took me a month to learn how to use Audacity, but it works very well for me now. So until a week from today, stay safe, my friends. And I now can say, good curling. <laughs>